Hello and welcome to The Price of Everything, a podcast that aims to shine a light on pricing. The cost of commodities, that's energy, food and so on, is such an important part of our lives. But how are those prices actually calculated? Why do they move up and down quite so much? And what's next? The Price of Everything is the first podcast dedicated purely to how pricing works. My name is Neil Bradford and I'm the founder and CEO of General Index, which is the world's first technology-led benchmark provider. Together with my colleagues from around the world and some special guests, we'll be taking you through how some of the world's most important commodities come to be priced and what the future looks like for them in the age of climate change and the energy transition. Dated Brent is the world's most widely recognized price for crude oil. But why Brent? How did an oil field off the coast of Scotland become so pivotal in global oil pricing? My colleague David Elwood explores the history. Thanks, Neil. I've been speaking to Dr. Adi Imshirovich, author of a new book on oil pricing. If you've not already listened to the first part, probably best to go check that out first, and you'll find a link in the show notes. In this second part, we discuss the downfall of Standard Oil in the United States and how the market swapped one monopoly for a whole series of international oil monopolies, interventionist governments and pricing cartels. Okay, let's rejoin the conversation. They were, they were, they were growing into a position that really the only way for, for this to be broken up was for the state, for the government to get, to get involved. And we'll come to that just in a moment, but the, in parallel to, so whilst Standard Oil was hoovering up all of the markets in the, in the domestic market in the US, there, around the turn of the 20th century, demand for oil was increasingly now coming from mobility. And we're seeing a sh- some, somewhat of a shift or the, 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 the roots of a shift away from kerosene with the, the internal combustion engine um, uh, requiring fuel um, illumination was instead also being met by electricity. So the, the supply and demand dynamics, and you, you said that Standard Oil they, or the parts of their group would have been tracking these trends. Well, they, if I assume they would have seen these trends. So, uh, and there was a tide as well of a, a, a sort of a growth in the international market with more competition um, outside the United States, um, you describe the the Noble Brothers, um, and they work in Russia. So uh, you've got you've got competition and a market emerging outside the U.S. Whilst at home, they've grown so large that they need to be tamed. And perhaps talk us through that that dis- the, the, the dissolution and of of the trust and and what that what that spawns really in terms of the legacy of Standard Oil. Well, you know, typical of politics to this day, I mean, there's so many parallels, and that's why we study history, David, because we can take so many, um, you know, lessons from, from those days. And, I, and I've actually, based on my book, I've written quite a lot of, uh, of papers and articles on energy transition in general and lessons we should learn for general transition. In those days, politicians were late, as usual. Um, uh, in, in 18, by 1877, I think it was, uh, they, they, the Standard Oil controlled all the refineries in Cleveland, Pittsburgh, New York, oil region, about 85% of the market and later went to 95%. But they were actually um, dissolved, the, the, the trust was dissolved in 1911, um, following passing of Sherman Antitrust Act. 
uh, Standard Oil was so big that it was broken into 30 companies. And some of these uh, are, are household names, uh, especially for us in the industry. You know, some of them, I'll just remind you, is Exxon, Mobil. Now, obviously, it's one company, but they were long time separate companies. Chevron, Marathon, Amoco, Arco, Conoco, and many, many others. So basically, you know, when, when in, in 1880s, when Standard Oil controlled in the US about 90% of all the production, 95% of all the refining, and when it was dissolved, actually, it only controlled about 60% of each. Why? Well, all the monopolies, uh, you know, crack at some stage because monopolies associated with very high profits. So you have new entrants and, you know, you can try and keep entrants for a very long time like Standard Oil did. But at some stage, you, 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 you know, you actually have to uh, make some room for others, especially if they're more efficient. And this is very, Russia is a very interesting story as well. Uh, from 1860s already, exports are becoming extremely important because everyone else finds that kerosene is quite useful for burning, especially Europe and the UK was a massive market. So all of this is, is being sailed on the old sailing wooden ships and it's going in barrels to, to, to Europe. But um, uh, quite early competition appears in Russia because as we know, um, you know, to this day, uh, around the Tumi region, that was the, that was oil and still is, of course. And um, the interesting thing that this is where I'm interested as an economist is uh, in 1873, Russia actually liberalized uh, oil industry. Up until then, it was they were selling it as a monopoly. The Tsar was selling it. Uh, and what happens then? There's a there's a massive inflow of capital into Russia. Uh, and later on, Russia was to become actually uh, the biggest producer in the world as well. But uh, essentially, uh, the characters that are really interesting are Nobel brothers. Um, really, really interesting story. Obviously, we can't go into, into the details, but Ludwig, especially Ludwig and Robert, Ludwig was, was also a, a, another genius. Uh, he actually um, constructed a first oil tanker that they used for kerosene. Later on, Marcus Samuel of Shell fame uh, copied that, essentially just made it transatlantic and, and, and launched his Murex, but we'll probably come to that point later on. They were uh, investing a lot of money, they were, they were ingenious and, and basically started producing, refining oil in Russia, became major competitive standard oil uh, very, very quickly. Uh, why? Well, um, essentially um, the other character or the Rothschild family also got into um, uh, the oil business, and they built, uh, there was a railway built in 1883 um, from Batumi to uh, Tbilisi, which is uh, a port on the Black Sea, that enabled, they basically opened the doors for Russian kerosene to come uh, to, to Eastern Europe. So essentially, uh, that kerosene starts displacing um, uh, standard oil kerosene in, in, in that part of Europe. Um, and in fact, competition was Obviously, for obvious reasons, because it was closer and it was cheaper, uh, labor was cheaper, uh, transportation was cheaper, that even standard oil agents now start buying this Russian kerosene to supply their own customers. It, it, was, that, that, it was like that. Later on, I mentioned Marcus Samuel and his Murex in 1892. He launches that and goes through Suez Canal to Asia. Now, again, another parallel. You know, like uh, late 90s, early noughties, You've got Asia as a major growing market becomes extremely important, and that's where all the competition is now happening. 
So uh, the competition we've got, uh, Marcus Samuel and his company, Marcus Samuel, again, another trader, makes a huge impact on the oil market. Uh, another trader um, was uh, Kessler or Royal Dutch. Uh, Royal Dutch was producing um, their own oil um, in, in, in what today is Indonesia, uh, in Sumatra. And he brings another trader, Henry Dettering, that was actually at the time uh, a, a Dutch trader in the region. Kessler dies earlier. Now, this is where the, this is the story, quick story of Shell. Some people know it very well, but what, what I want to, to stress is that, you know, uh, first of all, it's interesting that these guys were all traders. The second thing is that there was a massive competition to Standard Oil, and Standard Oil tried to buy Royal Dutch and actually failed. Um, and Marcus Samuel does that deal, but has to basically give control to uh, Royal Dutch, and that split of 60-40 in favor of Royal Dutch was there to stay with Shell Company up until very, very recently. So, um, uh, and, um, you know, then, then also on top of that, we have new sources of oil, new competition, William Knox Darcy um, um, uh, is, is, a, is a Brit who made his money in Australia, basically prospecting for gold and invests a lot of that money into Persia, gets Persian concession. Uh, later on um, in 1909 or 10, uh, production starts there. And then you have new sources in the Gulf of Mexico, California, mid-continent in the United States. And of course, new companies come in. And of course, uh, that's where, it, you know, Companies like Gulf Oil, Texaco come from, and later on, you know, their internal competition to um, to um, to Standard Oil. You're starting to talk there about uh, is another another of the key themes through your book, which is that change in oil flows always impact pricing structures. So we we for 19, 1911, as you say, the the Standard Oil Trust is dissolved. 1911, of course, we're only we're, we're at the start of the decade of, of the First World War. Um, you've described some of the early ventures there into, into, the, into the Middle East Gulf. Um, the British government then, they, in, in 1913, they take a stake in what is now BP, but in that venture that you described uh, to try and secure security of supply for the Royal Navy. Um, and... I mean, I know it's an oft-used phrase, but as we go through the war, and and, and war is a, is a, another key dynamic and a factor influencing in, influencing trends. But obviously, you quote that that famous phrase: "How the Allies floated to victory on a sea of oil." Um, talk us through now. We're sort of heading now into the 1910s, into the 1920s. Um, the 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 sort of the domestic U.S. markets sort of given way to standard oil trust has been split up you've got these the various components of it when some of some of them grow or they, yes they they grow into um what you describe as an international cartel of oil companies sometimes with the state as as a key or as a key or the, the main shareholder and these are these will become to know be known as the majors talk us through i'm conscious that um conscious of time but um, in terms of talk us through sort of this period now from like roughly the the 1920s up to the to the second world war like this is a period where the iocs the majors start to dominate and have a real key role over price i'm, I'm getting conscious of time I, I just kind of got get a little bit caught into the really niceties of history there's so many <laughs> interesting things to talk about as well well everyone has to go and buy your book afterwards that's why 
Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> and, and, and the thing is, like in my book, I, I'm trying to focus so much on the price and market and price discovery, not so much, because obviously, I, you know, I, it's definitely too, I, I'm, I'm not interested to, to, to write another book uh, about the history of the industry. This is really focused book on the, on the price and the markets and development of the markets, plus a lot of economics behind it, as you, as you just mentioned monopolies, why they happen, and we discussed that, and, and flows, and, and why do benchmarks and prices change? So I'll touch, um, based on these subjects, through a little bit of history as well. So of course, the, one of the key things when I was teaching energy economics at, um, at, at university, the first thing I would always say, the government policy is extremely important, and we can see here in the, in, in the, in the, in the history of the oil markets as well. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> Um, I think it's an interesting snippet that I found and discovered. Um, well, a couple of ones. Is, uh, it, when I was talking, um, um, we were talking about Russia early on. I just need to mention that I found in one source that Dmitry Mendeleev, the father of periodic system of elements, was actually a, uh, an oil consultant because right. he was a chemist. He was a chemist. He was consulting. Actually, he went to Philadelphia as well. He went to you know, travel the United States, check the refining systems and advise uh, the Tsar as well. So that's kind of interesting. Um, the other interesting one was uh, the, the role of the government, British Navy. They, the, the parliament actually passed the ownership, the law of, of the ownership of, of majority ownership in BP, what is now, that was Anglo-Persian then. Two weeks, it was very, very, very fortunate timing, two weeks before Franz Ferdinand got killed here in Sarajevo, um, where I am right now. So uh, fortunate timing, and the, and and the First World War then was extremely important. It it, it became obvious that the war was, uh, you know, essentially totally based on oil. Okay, uh, later on we'll see in the Second Second uh, World War as well uh, becomes even more obvious when you know Jürgen's book, The Prize, essentially that one of the arguments there is that you know Hitler was just wanted to get close to the oil fields, and and the whole war was. Uh, conducted in, in, in that way. But essentially, in, 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 um, we have this post-colonial post period that's very important where the sort of uh, foreign, British foreign office uh, plays a major role and together with the Germans, muscles, muscles in, um, you know, BP or Anglo-Persian, Shell and Deutsche Bank into, into the um, uh, Turkish Petroleum Company. And we're talking about Ottoman Empire and which control most of the Middle East, right? And they muscle in uh, later on the German, after the war, the German um, portion or ownership goes to France. And they, th this whole thing is about the government, neo-colonial um, relationship with the producers, um, the, 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 the Sultan of, of uh, the Turkish Sultan basically transfers most of the profitable land into his own account and uh, there's another whole story of Mr. Five Percent or Armenian uh, called Pulbenkian, who is a banker. These are all very interesting stories, but uh, back to our sort of story was that the, the first red line agreement between the French uh, and the British, the red line agreement was just the first monopoly agreement. Uh, it, it clearly divided the world, gave it, gave it on a silver plate to the oil companies and, and make sure that they don't compete. Uh, it was an, basically uh, an, an agreement which, into which the Americans later on 
um, muscle in as well with the with help of the U.S. State Department. Uh, so the American companies also get um, an equal share. It was interesting also that in in those days, Britain is still a, a power, but a very weak one, especially coming out of the Second World War. And it, it was best described in um, that the weakness in, in the uh, 1944 Anglo-American oil agreement. That agreement was never really ratified by Congress. It was not, but essentially it, it, it became obvious that it was, uh, that was the first attempt ever to regulate oil globally between those two powers. Um, uh, but, but the key in that one for us here is that uh, in that agreement, there was, uh, it, it granted the open door policy uh, to the Americans. So the American companies could actually come in into the Middle East uh, uh, and, and, and start exploring. So very soon we have, um, um, we have um, Bahrain concession being, uh, being discovered, oil is discovered um, uh, by, by Chevron, again, with the help of State Department. Uh, interesting story as well there was uh, that uh, Texaco comes in because most of that oil is marketed in the East, but there's a lot of competition where Chevron was very weak, so they bring in Texaco. So Texaco and Chevron now have half ownership of that concession, but Texaco gives the marketing, uh, shares the marketing in Asia with, with, with Chevron through a new company called Caltex, and that's the origin of, of obviously the Caltex in the East. Uh, later on, we have in 38, we discover Arbicade, that's Exxon, uh, big fields in Saudi Arabia, Gawa, the biggest field in the world. And then the four big American companies, Marceline, the Chevron, Chevron, Texaco, Exxon, uh, keep saying Exxon Mobil, because now we're just saying Exxon Mobil, because one company now. And those uh, four uh, partners um, create um, the um, Aramco. And that's where Aramco originally comes from. Very often in the industry, you say Aramco partners, but we refer to these uh, four companies. Just to cut the long story short, now we have BP Shell, we have American companies. They, they essentially work together. Later on, they're called obviously Seven Sisters. Um, but the interesting way they, they do it, there's, there's no essentially price. These companies are essentially together have joint ventures. They ration supply together. They're using a number of rules, which I go into detail in the book. I won't bother you now, but they, they essentially make sure the market is always um, uh, well supplied, that um, no oil goes outside their integrated systems. And they introduce now the key to the book is pricing. You know, pricing was um, uh, very, very much discriminatory to pricing. It has some interesting historical origin. Of course, for a long period of time, the US was a major exporter, right? So at least at the time, about 60% um, of the market was all the US oil. So it's, it was natural that the price would be US-based, US Gulf. So it was Gulf plus, plus pricing. But of course, during the war, it was, it was uh, the British Auditor General that was going through the accounts. Uh, they were buying uh, fuel oil from BP for British Navy. So here's this British Navy loading, loading um, fuel oil in Abaddon uh, from the Abaddon refinery in, in, in Persia, right? And being charged a price in the US Gulf plus some invisible import, non-existing freight <laughs> from the US Gulf. Phantom freight, I think you call it, right? Exactly, phantom freight. So, um, so we have, you know, we have these uh, discriminatory pricing 
that over time had to change, okay? Um, but then even when they move, they, they, they start uh, posting prices in the Persian Gulf. They simply use the prices from US Gulf. Uh, again, they're getting massive profits because on average at the time, I think production cost in Bahrain was about 15 cents a barrel and production cost in the US was over a dollar. So again, it was discriminatory. Uh, and it was with Marshall Plan that it all kind of becomes a little bit obvious. Um, obviously, Marshall Plan is another way to enhance the, the, the role of the US companies in, in, in the Middle East. Britain and France come out weak after the Second World War, but they're held by the, by, by the, the, the Americans and, and a lot of um, oil comes from the, the Middle East. So it became obvious that pricing has to be kind of tweaked again. Um, again, I'll cut the long story short, but they set a UK as an equalizing point. So you take a US Gulf plus freight minus, minus freight to the, from the Gulf. And then uh, after 48, when the um, US actually starts importing oil, um, again, that point tweaks uh, moves to the US Gulf, but now becomes US Gulf minus pricing. So it's, it's a whole mess. Uh, the pricing system is broken, uh, even though that these are not market prices, they're just used for tax calculations. And the problem is they try and keep them stable so everyone is happy. Um, and um, uh, later on, when, when essentially um, they, they realize that they have to drop those prices, then they start tweaking freights rather than using, I think it was called um, US um, Marine uh, Committee or whatever freight rates. There were long-term averages. They use uh, spot rates because spot rates are lower to keep the prices stable. And then when the spot rates change, they don't do anything anyway. They keep prices posted, prices stable. So anyway, it's, it's, um, it's a monopoly, total monopoly situation, prices, don't exist, there's no markets. The only price that, that's there basically is the price they use for tax calculations to pay the taxes to the producing countries. And all is done through something called pool association um, or ESIS agreements that was uh, agreed between three majors, Exxon, BP and Shell uh, in Ankanar in Scotland or ESIS agreement. Um, and, and the idea is to pool the resources to minimize the costs. And the companies literally work together very, very closely as, as a very efficient, excellent monopoly. Again, like the Rockefeller, price is set by them or posted, just like Rockefeller, and that's it. There's no markets, there's no really prices to speak We of. keep discovering through your book, no system lasts forever. And as we head now quickly uh, into the, the second half of the 20th century, what we have, so the majors start to see their, uh, their position challenged. Um, there are discoveries being made elsewhere, noticeably in, in Libya. And you describe how over, say, from, from, from 1946, when there were, aside from the, the majors, there were, say, nine independent oil companies, that by 1970, there were 81. So through that, it kind of captures quite nicely the, the majors' dominance, their hold on the market was uh, disrupted. Um, and... Also, you've got other geopolitical themes through this time as well, the, the rise of um, the, the pushback against um, the kind of post-colonial uh, communism, the sort of nationalization and revolution. Um, and I'm kind of, it sort of, it, it, does, it feels like it doesn't do it justice to kind of gloss over this period with some quite broad 
by broad brushstrokes, but um, we, we can revisit this at, at a future date, perhaps. Um, just describe to us quite quickly then, in terms of just this sweep, as, as we're heading now into, into the 1960s, we see the rise of the, the, the nation state in the Middle East and, 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 and OPEC emerges as a challenger and, a, and, and as a vehicle for pricing. Yeah, very quickly, um, I think we, we saw the independence of uh, uh, companies like I mentioned in the United States before um, the, the US uh, National Security Council actually allows oil companies to income, income tax to be credited against the US tax. So actually, basically, they can just pass on the extra costs because of the threat of communism. Uh, the governments, especially US and UK, allow the producing countries a lot more leeway in, in increasing those having higher prices or actually higher percentage of, uh, of, of taxes coming out of production, because that's a simpler way rather than go to the Congress, you just give them high price to the Shah of Iran so you can buy weapons from you and so on. So basically that's, uh, that's the other balancing side. So essentially <clears throat> we're having these uh, most big changes in, in any energy industry or in most other industries as well, happen when there's an excess supply. We've had that with gas, with LNG, just before recently, three or four years ago. Basically, you get increase in, in, in market um, participation. We had Great Depression as well. Let's not forget that. And after the Great Depression, we have sort of you know weakness in the market. So now we have also um, oil coming from other places. Let's not, you mentioned Libya, uh, Algeria, and so on, but you, you have Russia as well. The production grows a lot to 4 million barrels very, very, very quickly. And then you have a new breed of populist leaders like Gaddafi, Boumediene, Nasser, uh, Tariki, and Alfonso within OPEC and so on. And they, they are basically pushing for more and more in a tight market as the market slowly tightens. Uh, they're, they're, they're pushing for more, um, more participation, first participation, but essentially that later on leads also to nationalization of the, of the oil industry. I think um, what I'm going to do as I'm going very quickly, I have to mention the key thing for OPEC and this transition from oil companies to, to OPEC. That was the, um, in, uh, in 1958 in Cairo, there is the first Arab Petroleum Congress. It's extremely important. Uh, it's important because um, um, they, OPEC producing countries become aware that in various presentations that actually oil, oil companies are making a lot more money elsewhere. They think they're getting 50-50 sort of uh, tax arrangements, but all companies are then charging uh, pipelines, they're, they're making money on the downstream and so on. And the other thing, they have this American advisor called Hendricks, um, who basically argues that under U US, UK and French law, actually producing countries can change their concessions if they're not in their best public interest. On the sidelines of that agreement, far more important is that representatives of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Egypt, Syria, Iran, and Venezuela sit down and talk about the future of the oil industry as far as producing countries are concerned, and they reach so-called Mahdi or Mahdi agreement, in which basically that agreement has no legal value or anything, but it's extremely important because they, 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 they express their aspirations that they producing countries need to increase the shares of revenues, they need to support prices because of tax, um, they need to be consulted before prices are posted, uh, posted prices are changed. They want to get more involved into pipelines and refining because that's where the money is. They need to establish national oil companies 
and they need to coordinate these policies. So this Mardi agreement becomes essentially a roadmap for decades to come, and OPEC will sort of follow those, those ideas. So uh, the key for us, uh, me and you, sort of in terms of price and pricing, get back to the book, pricing structure made no sense. And the problem was that, you know, when, when the, the major oil companies, when, the, when they had to reduce posted price in a, in, in a weak market, either they would take a hit themselves and, and they would um, pay higher taxes, or they would just pass it on uh, to the producing countries by reducing those prices. And of course, they, they, they hugely depended on, on that oil revenue. So at one stage, to cut the long story short, after a couple of uh, reductions by BP and uh, Exxon, now Exxon, um, uh, on September the 14th, uh, 60, 1960 in Baghdad, uh, Venezuela, um, Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iraq, uh, and Kuwait set up OPEC. That's it. So, um, you know, <laughs> cutting through the story, I'm making it sort of simple, but first, the important thing is first 10 years of OPEC, OPEC virtually does nothing. They have a lot of aspirations, there's a lot of talking, but they do very, very little. And they, they come into their own really in the 1970s. Um, war again is a sort of a function of the, of the geopolitics at the time. Um, you have um, see the, the Arab-Israeli war in, in 73 and, and that there's a sort of a price war. And, um, and, and really almost for the next kind of, from 73 to sort of in, into the mid eighties, the OPEC and the NOCs are kind of, they fight in another transformation in the market, which is the emergence of the spot, spot market. And, and as we draw things to a close, I, I wonder if you could just say a few words on that, because the emergence of the spot market um, is obviously key to the story of Brent and the evolution of that as a, as a price benchmark. Yeah, absolutely. There's no trading in oil, as I mentioned, everything is, 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 is within the integrated systems. And 70s are the key, we'll also cut through that one uh, as quickly as possible. I think it's important to say that, um, you know, throughout most of the 1970s, OPEC, at least my opinion, it's slightly controversial, but it was, in my opinion, it was riding the market, not controlling it. Because OPEC had no way to control the price. Um, they, you can control the price through quotas, through balancing supply and demand. They were not doing anything of the sort. The demand was increasing, prices were going up, and they were basically just uh, increasing those uh, those prices. Uh, I think the key the key that comes after sort of by the late seventies. You know, OPEC is pretty much by the end of nineteen seventies. OPEC's in charge of their own resources, output, and prices, but they still have no mechanism. Only in eighty two, OPEC actually starts uh, setting ceilings and and and, uh, and quotas, and they don't have a need because the demand is growing so much. And I spend quite a bit of time. I'm not going to do it now on very, very silly policies of consuming countries, particularly uh, in Europe and, and the US with price freezes and so on. Very important for what we are doing now, but maybe in some other talk, uh, we, what we're doing with gas, a bad idea because demand well, was increasing significantly and, and uh, supply was actually being curtailed, especially in the United States. The United States start, stops becoming stops being uh, uh, any great help in terms of uh, oil supply because their own production is falling. So I think um, in, in terms of uh, emerging of the spot market, what becomes uh, uh, policies of nationalization uh, in places like um, 
Iran, for example, BP loses their own concession, is forced to go into the open market to, to find that oil. A number of uh, so-called independent companies are being picked off by, by uh, people like Gaddafi and, and, and Al Algerian revolutionary um, uh, government. They're basically being picked off and played once against, against the other. But those independent companies, partly to do with the US policy of, of quotas, uh, import quotas, they are stranded, they have the stranded oil, and this oil has to find a place somewhere. So actually, we start uh, seeing the beginning of the spot market. And of course, um, after the Iranian Revolution, 79, what we see actually is, um, is emergence of the spot market uh, and, and, and um, uh, serious sort of uh, spot prices being uh, more or less um, an indicator of where the sort of posted prices of OPEC should be going. And OPEC is basically just following, um, following the market, writing it, as I said, rather than sort of setting it up. Adi, I, I, we, could, we could talk for a whole other hour, I think, on this. Um, and um, I'm sure, I think that means that we have to invite you back if, if you're willing at a later date. But um, that was a really sort of mammoth effort, a, a tour de force taking us through um, sort of a hundred, over a hundred years of oil pricing history. Um, so thank you very much for joining us. Um, I just want to give a reminder to our listeners that Addy's book, Trading and Price Discovery for Crude Oils, uh, published by Palgrave, is available in all good bookstores and online distributors. Uh, to our listeners, if you'd like to engage with anything we've been discussing, uh, you can join in the conversation on Twitter and LinkedIn uh, by using the hashtag GXPriceOfEverything, GXPriceOfEverything. Um, I'll be back next time with more special guests when I would journey through the story of Brent crescendos and uh, we explore the North Sea discoveries in the 70s, uh, the 1970s, and the proliferation of trading in London in the 80s. So just leaves me to say, Adi, thank you very much again. Uh, it's been a pleasure to have you. Um, and to our listeners, uh, we look forward uh, to joining, uh, to having you back next time. But until then, uh, you've been listening to The Price of Everything, a new podcast from General Index. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>